The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV, where we discuss the hidden themes and deeper layers of movies and TV shows. I'm your host for this evening, Jeff Hecker, and joining me is Patrick Mason. Hey, Patrick. Howdy, Jeff. And Thomas Salerno. Hey, Thomas. Hey there, Jeff. And luckily, you don't have to take a slow ship to the edge of known space to find the store of Starquest knowledge. You can visit sqpn.com. Be sure to follow the secrets of movies and TV on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast directory or app. And you can find us on social media at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or on Twitter, where we are at sqpn, or on Instagram, where we are at starquestnet. So today we'll be reviewing the first season of Foundation on Apple TV. The second season is currently airing, but we will only be discussing season one. We may speculate on season two, but any spoilers will only be from this season. So for those of who may not know, I thought we'd give a brief summary or a brief gist of what it's based on first before we get into the show, because there is quite a bit different. The series is based on the Foundation novels by Isaac Asimov. They were originally a number of short stories collected into novels. And the brief summary I have for the novel is in a galactic empire of the far future, Harry Selden creates the field of psychohistory, which allows for the prediction of future events by the study of mathematics. This is predicted that the empire will fall and lead to millennia of a dark age. He is exiled to a world to collect knowledge, to preserve it, to help shorten the dark age, but it's actually meant to be the seed of a new empire to rise among the ashes. And I don't know if y'all have read all of the novels. It's been a couple of years. They get a fair bit more complex from there, but they are really good and worth reading. I don't know if any of y'all have read the read the books time in the past. Definitely not recently, but yeah, I've, I've read them all in the past. I read, he came, he came out with a, one that connected it between uh, Foundation and the Empire series. That was where you actually followed Harry Seldon. It was one of the I later say. ones. Yeah, it was one of the last ones he wrote. I've only read the first one. And that was in college, so a while ago. And I, my memories of it are pretty vague, but even while I was watching this season, I'm like, okay, I know my memory of the book, the first book is pretty spotty, but I can definitely see they have changed a lot for TV, which I guess makes sense, because the book, like you said, Jeff, being stitched together from shorter novellas, it doesn't... Sometimes I felt, at least from my memory of the first book, that it's difficult sometimes that it doesn't have one story beginning to end. It's several stories. Yeah, at least the first couple. And then the later ones, they are more of a developed novel type of thing. I think in the the show, they didn't want to jump around in time a whole lot. They wanted to tell a more straightforward narrative. Yeah, I think what we got from the show was a foundation and empire. So the last book he wrote. And a conglomeration of that and the the first or second story out of the first Foundation book. And we got that because we were watching two, roughly two different timelines at the same time. We kept going back and forth. Yeah. At least that's the impression I took away from it. Yeah, because Foundation Empire, the book, it was kind of Harry Seldon, like how he developed psychohistory. So it's almost a prequel to Foundation, first book. But yeah, it was like the first, the very beginnings of it. And yeah, like stitches together those. But yeah, very cool. And then Thomas, er, earlier a while ago, you had mentioned that the planet Coruscant was actually based on Trent. 
don't know if you had any other. That's what I've read, yeah. I know that George Lucas was a fan of a lot of kind of that era of sci-fi, and that both Foundation and obviously Frank Herbert's Dune had a big influence on Star Wars. But yeah, because Trantor is, you know, it's an ecumenopolis, it's a city planet. And I, I think the even even in in the show, it's funny. It, it reminds me a lot of Coruscant, but it it is distinct enough so that it's not a complete carbon copy, which I appreciated. Yeah, it seemed like Coruscant was an open air environment city planet, and they did make a point in the Foundation novels that Trantor had these domes that everything was domed, and it had its the atmosphere was effectively controlled at that point. Yeah, yeah. very cool. And then before we get into the summary, one thing I, I did wanted to note, and you guys knew this or had any thoughts about this, but Roxanne Dawson, Star Trek Voyager, she played Belana Torres. She directed a couple episodes of this season, and I think she's directing in the in the second season. She's actually a practicing Catholic, or at least was uh, was as of a few years ago. She directed one of the episodes that was very religion heavy this season. It was the one where, uh, which we'll get into, the one where Cleon goes to the, the desert planet on his like religious journey. She actually directed that. I don't know if any of y'all knew that or anything about that, but just a note I thought might be interesting for us. But right, and any other before we get into the plot, any kind of brief first impressions of the show, likes or dislikes, or I was very impressed from the first episode. And I wasn't sure if, if I was going to be, but obviously they, they have the, the, the effects are very good and it's Apple. They have like a gazillion dollars, <laughs> but, but that, that impressed me. The, the, the characters and their arcs were very impressive. I was just pulled in to the story from the first episode. One thing I did notice immediately from the book is that, and I actually think it might be a bit of an improvement is that. There were several character gender swaps where several characters who I remember being male from the book are now female in the show, which made sense to me because I remember even when I read the first book, I was like, wow, there are basically no female characters. Right. In this book. It's all men. Yeah, it's all men. I remembered there were, there were a couple of women who show up as very minor background characters, but it was a it was essentially a man universe. And I got it because I get that it was supposed to be like a quasi feudal society but you still felt the imbalance and i felt that in this show like it yeah i i felt that it worked it's not one of those things that they just did because they wanted to check a box and it didn't make sense for the story i i felt that i didn't have a problem with that at all in fact yeah i i felt it was an improvement on the source material because it it made the world feel more well-rounded and realistic yeah i think what i Initially, I had I struggled with like how different it was from the books. So I watched it all the way through twice, and then about the second half of the show, a third time, just to try and get. And there's a lot of stuff I missed the first time through, and I realized they they are really they're doing a really good job of telling the same basic story without telling the same story. Like a lot of the same elements are there, the same, like you said, characters who didn't exist or who were different, but they still are going on the same journey. There's still the same things changing the, the Empire and the Foundation and the other tribes, if you want to call them, <laughs> or the other planets of people all moving in kind of the same way they did in the books. But you, the interpersonalness is 
which was absent from the books you get to see in the show. And I think they're doing a really good job of it. That's what struck me. Yeah. And I, I want to say from the books, at least in the first one, cause I, that's mostly what we're, what the season was covering. The empire was like, the emperor was a figurehead and didn't really do anything. Whereas here it's the emperor is like, and, and the whole cloning thing was new to the show as well. Right. Like, Oh, was it? I was going to ask. Believe so. Oh yeah. yeah. There yeah, might've yeah. been elements of cloning, but yeah, the emperor, it, there definitely wasn't like this long line of cloned emperors. So yeah, definitely some, I, but I thought that was an interesting improvement because it led to some interesting storylines, but yeah. And o- overall I enjoyed it as well. It took me a couple episodes to really get into it. Cause there's a lot of, as we'll discuss, there's multiple timelines and you're jumping around and, and it can be, and you're getting a lot of names thrown at you all at once. So it, for those listening, if you not watched it and were watched a couple and weren't thrown off and felt the same as me. Maybe give it a couple episodes for things to start coming together and recognizing who these characters are. But at least that was my experience of it. But yeah, I figure we can start with the overall plot summary and then get into there's kind of three main storylines that I think I that I think are going on here. But just the brief summary is the Galactic Empire was been ruled by clones of Emperor Cleon for hundreds of years. There are three clones at any given time, Brother Day, who rules, Brother Dusk, who is an elder Cleon, formerly Day, who acts as an advisor, and Brother Dawn, who is being raised to rule. And when Brother Dusk reaches a certain age, he is euthanized, which we can only talk about that, <laughs> and a new Brother Dawn is born. And the Cleons are served by the android Eto de Merzel, who doesn't seem to follow the laws of robotics, since in the books the robot novels are linked to the Foundation for those who may not know that as the robot novels were the ones like there was iRobotic years ago that was the Will Smith movie but the, he had the three laws of robotics which this android doesn't seem to follow and then this, the main story of the show begins when a math prodigy named Gale from an anti-science planet joins Harry Selden on Trantor and pretty much right after she joins Selden is arrested for sedition the imperial prosecutor tries to prove his model of the failing empire false However, Gale confirms his predictions. And at this point, a massive space station is bombed and the Empire retaliates against the planets. They blame these certain planets, but then Brother Day spares Selden, exiling him and his followers to Terminus, the end of the known galaxy, to collect knowledge to shorten the Dark Age. So as a, you're probably wrong, but just in case, I don't want people to say that I didn't do anything. And then, so... Going from there, like I said, I think we'll cover these three storylines kind of one by one. The first one was the shortest, I thought, which was the getting to Terminus and the Gale storyline. Because they, in the show, they have jump ships which can travel faster than light, but they are instantaneously, whereas they made them take a slow ship to this world to punish them. And I forget how long the journey was supposed to take exactly, but in route, one of Sylvan's students actually kills him and has Gale escape in the ship in like a cryopod she's awakened 34 years later which that kind of matches gets into the timeline of the second subplot and an ai of harry Selden comes online and finds out that his death was actually part of his plan to set gale up as the new leader but we find out that she has some prescience abilities she can predict the future a little bit or see things before they happen and it warned her of the murder so he tells her he's she's being taken to the second foundation which in the books, this is an overseer of the foundation that has based on mental abilities. And, but she rebels against this and leaves the ship. And then we'll come back to her storyline and get to the next one because it dovetails with, with the next one. But what did y'all think of this uh, storyline? 
It's the shortest, but also maybe has the biggest setup for the second season. Once Gale arrives on the the Raven thing, yeah, that, I that think so. other ship that Harry had set up, for whatever reason, there was like this disconnect and I stopped being interested. In fact, I actually skipped over that big scene where she's trying to figure out where she is and she does all that math. <laughs> I actually started looking on the little thing at the bottom, which you can move of the screen where you can on my computer where you can move back and forth to to go through the scenes and I'm like oh she keeps doing this for a long time and I knew what the outcome she was going to be she was going to find out where she was so I just skipped over that until she she found out what her location was I'm like I don't have the patience to sit through her hand waving at these screens and doing these calculations I'm like I, I don't care about that I liked Gail as a character there were just some moments where I was like, <laughs> okay, I can skip this. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really See, notice the length of time it was taking. I, I thought it was interesting. It seemed to me, it seemed it. interminable. I was like, <laughs> uh, so like, uh, because I've, I've, you know, I'm aerospace engineer. I was doing the, the whole, I was walking along with her. I was like, okay, what's she going to do now? Because oh. <laughs> she's, okay, so how's she going to figure out the orbital mechanics? Okay, it's not showing her an actual screen. Oh, she's got to go outside. Okay, this will get interesting. <laughs> that was fun for me, but that's because I was a particular kind of nerd. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that they, the show is basically, like, essentially it's based on math. Like, the book was based on math, and they made this, like, fairly successful show uh, based on ultimately like a, a, a math problem, which is funny because math is I'm not my strong point either. Yeah, no. It, yeah, it was okay. Like we said, it was the shortest of kind of the main plot lines and starting out the first couple episodes, you don't think it's, you think it's going to be like, she's the main kind of the focus of the show, which it seems like she'll be maybe in the second season, which again, I haven't watched that, but yeah. And it was, it was interesting seeing her start to learn. She has these little bits of premonition that may have helped her. That's because she comes from a world that was like, were they anti-science or were they just anti, they were like a religious, but like a kind of a back backward backwater religious where they like everything is they were the even will of the God. And, basic math. And I'm yeah. like, no society would be run this it, way. Yeah. It seemed like, like from what I could gather, it was anti anti-science because they had done something with technology to oh, melt okay. their ice caps oh, okay. and that had yeah. caused it, it i guess before it wasn't necessarily a water planet but it had become a water planet because of that and their solution to the problem was no more science <laughs> and gail was like but if we don't science we're all gonna die right, we have to yeah. science and so for that she gets kicked off her planet yeah even they seem to to have been at the moment we see them not like an Iron Age society, but still, they didn't have any technology of any kind. They lived in these kind of hut buildings, and I was like, okay, even like Neolithic people, like the people who built Stonehenge knew math, or they wouldn't have been able to build it. And they were like Neolithic, and they wouldn't have been able to line it up with all its astronomical alignments. So even quote-unquote primitive cultures know how to do math, can do astronomical calculations by looking at the stars. I'm like, no society, even at their level of technology, would work this way. But I guess it makes sense if they had had some, if they blamed technology, then it's almost like the the novel, I don't know if either of you have read it, the, the Canticle for Leibowitz, yeah. where a after the nuclear war, there's this thing called the simplification, where these mobs of Luddites destroy all technology because they blame 
technology and science for the nuclear war. And even books. And even books, yes. They all, the, all knowledge needs to go. So I guess it is a trope in science fiction then. Yeah, because you have the yeah. same, a similar thing happens in Dune with the Butlerian Jihad, where they yeah. destroy all thinking machines right. are now verboten. Um, <laughs> and they go on that crusade or that the Jihad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, machine crusade. Yeah, yeah, and I think even this society, like the mo- modern imperial society, doesn't have a lot of, it doesn't have a, robots. Like Eto de Merzal, I think, is the only one that we've, at least that we're aware of, there could be like hidden robots around. But I think at one point in the show, they mentioned there was some kind of either the technology just fell out of use or they just stopped using robots or if something. I remember right in the books, there's a purge more or less. The yeah, empire decides to get rid of them for one reason or another. I can't remember. You can ultimately find out in the books that foundation is being guided by a robot. Right. Yeah. And ready oh. to be guided by kind of an overseeing intelligence, which Edda Merzal is at filling that character. Right. So. I'm very interested to see what she ends up becoming in the long run because of that. Because I got to admit, when Gail showed up on the ship and they were around that dark star, I thought she was going to be part of the third foundation, not mm-hmm. the second foundation. And then Harry starts talking about establishing the second foundation. I'm like, Okay, but that was supposed to be on Trant, like in the books, that was on Trantor, that was embedded within the university, and okay. instead he's got it set up on on his home planet out in the the other reaches of space. So her her storyline was very confusing to me <laughs> for yeah. several reasons. I don't say I didn't enjoy it. There just wasn't a. It, it very much felt like all the payoff for herself is going to be season two. There's just not a lot of it in season one. And her and, yeah, her and Selden's relationship doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know. I don't get it. Like, it's, it, it feels very rushed. And also at the same time, like, she, she like, suddenly, she, like, gives up on, like, the missions. Nope, I'm out. Let me out of my, I'm going to destroy your ship so you let me out. And I get to, <laughs> I'm going to go back home in my little pod. And that, that to me was like nuts. I'm like, why would you do that? But I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, like we said, it was the shortest. Unless anybody has anything else to say on that one, we could move on to the next because we'll, and we'll come back to that kind of dovetails. But so the next one I thought about was the whole terminus plot line. So basically it's a way of kind of the, the, her being in cryostasis for 34 years or whatever it was is a way to match up the future because they, the first couple episodes that you actually see in the future where, Terminus is now colonized by the Foundation. And there's this artifact called the Vault, which casts like a nullification field, which knocks people out who get close to it. And the field is expanding, but there's one person, Salver Hardin, who can go across it without being knocked out. And she's also starting to have visions, which check off visions that they'll... (laughs) I want to go back and watch the show and pay attention to each of her visions. But then then the planet is invaded by... Some of the Anacreans, I think they were called, which is one of the planets that Cleon had destroyed. And it turns out that the Anacreans are, there's an Imperial warship that's they've located, which is jumping randomly through space, but they've located it and they want to take it before it jumps again, because the jump technology is like a, it's like a state secret that only the high ups in the empire can know how to use. So it keeps the rest of the empire subservient. And they do take her and some others to the ship and she manages to get in control of it and gets it to Terminus. And she arrives and finds all of her people now knocked out by the vault and her boyfriend from 
Thespis, which is the other planet Cleon destroyed, brings his people to net to help the Terminate. Termini, I think, would be the Terminites. Term, term, the Termites or Termini. Yeah. Terminators. Yeah. And then Salvor is able to cross the field, open the vault, and calls all the planets to come together to fight their common enemy of the Empire. But then out of the vault comes the clones of Harry Selden, who proposes that the line of Cleons is the enemy, and he returns to the vault saying he's not the cause of Salvor's visions. And it turns out which we'll go back through this, it turns out Salvor's biological parents were actually Gale and Raish, who is her boyfriend on the slow ship that actually killed Harry, as all conceived humans from this slow ship were put into cold storage as embryos to prevent any, the ship has a sudden deceleration or something, prevents a loss of a pregnancy. And Salvor feels Gale calling her and leaves Terminus to find her. And 138 years later, Gale wakes up at her pod on her home planet and she finds her home basically destroyed, but then finds Salvor's pod under the water and pulls her out. So I guess that season two will be her and Gale and Salvor kind of working together to get off the planet to start with. But I don't know what y'all thought about this plot line, which was, I don't know if it was, if it had more runtime than the, the one about the Cleons, which we'll talk about next. But this one I thought was more interesting than Gale's for sure. than just like the Gale navigating her, sh- getting to her home planet again. Yeah, I liked this one a lot, and I liked the characters, and I was really into kind of everything that was happening. And this was the one where the fact that I didn't, I don't know how much in this storyline was changed from the books, but I felt like there, my sort of only vague memories of the books, I guess, was a help, because I'm like, okay, I'm not paying attention to whether this is hewing close to the books or not, I just what's going on. And I liked the different character dynamics, I liked a lot of the action stuff and them dealing with the the barbarians i guess yeah <laughs> i like their armor yeah, by the way they were like hunter people who either i don't know if they were that way before their home was destroyed or if that was just like these were the remaining people and they had to go into a more primitive kind of state while also still managing to get a ship and finding the jump ship i'm remembering the gifts they give to cleon during the interrogation basically when he's trying to figure out who blew up the thing and the gift they give him is the bow Mm-hmm. And it's made completely of wood, and it's like a teaching moment. I don't know if we get this with the Cleons, but it's the teaching moment between day and dawn of what this means. What does this gift mean? And going into it, because they go over the Thespian one as well. And basically, I think it comes out that the world doesn't really have much in the way of like mineral deposits or metals or whatever. It's it is a very primitive culture, even though they're like a part of the empire and whatnot. Yeah, I got the sense that they were almost like a vassal state. Because they seem to have, they call them kingdoms, and they seem to have some sort of level of autonomy, but they're still subservient to the empire. It's how the Roman Empire had, there were provinces of the empire, and then there were barbarians who were vassals. And they fought in the Roman army as auxiliaries, but they technically weren't citizens of the empire. Yeah, this was pretty different from the book, I feel. I think, from what I remember, like, Patrick, you may remember more. It's been probably 13-something years, 14 years, maybe, since I've actually read the books. But, yeah, I think there's definitely, like, a crisis of the Second Foundation in the store in the books, but it's different than this. And there's, like, this whole invasion storyline and finding this warship and coming together to fight Cleon, because, again... Leon's a show invention and they're fighting against this institution of having this kind of 
stagnant cloned emperor. And that's not in the book at all. And in fact, in the book, the, the empire is actually destroyed or at least like the capital is destroyed and taken over by barbarians as it were, who, and it leads to centuries of kind of, of strife and war. But yeah. This is definitely, it's kind of be setting, getting, setting that up in the next season for the show. Yeah, it's because it, what they do, if I remember correctly, they basically established a theocracy of technology. This it's very reminiscent of Warhammer 40k, where there's this this is you treat the machine this way and you rub it with the sacred oils and you chant the sacred chants and then the machine works <laughs> for you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> just plug it in, man. <laughs> and I want to say the names are pretty similar because they established this sort of theocratic network with four other planets at the beginning, the sort of the, the baseline. And that's one of the things I liked about the storyline is it was a way to move the story along the same path, tell almost the same story that the original foundation books told with. So instead of the one traitor guy who we do get, and I can't remember his name, but it's Salvo's boyfriend, right? He is in the foundation books because he's the guy who goes back and forth between the trading stuff. And he gets more important later on near the third, second or third crisis. But he, having her, having Salvo drive the story forward, number one, she's a very likable character. <laughs> she was probably my favorite. Yeah. yeah. And the, the kind of mystery around her and the visions and her connection both to Gale, we learn eventually to Gale. And we she, both she and the viewers led that she's got some connection to Harry, but we eventually learn it's really to Gale. But she does also have some connection with Harry because she can approach the vault, whereas nobody else could. So I thought it was a really interesting way to drive it forward, to build sort of the, the baseline foundation the same way the books did without having this sort of technological theocracy <laughs> thing. Because I, I was thinking to myself, how are they going to pull this? How are they going to do this? How are they going to show this in the show? And I'm like, okay, they didn't. They went a different route. But I think they did a good job with it. I believe the next crisis is the Empire sort of gets wind of them and starts to send out, like, an, I don't know what you call it, an invasion force like scout or something. ships or, yeah. like, reconnaissance. And that ends up getting foiled because the Empire basically collapses on itself at that moment, uh, coming to head of all of Harry's mathematic stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to call it nonsense. <laughs> but. For, and this confused me, both in the book and in the show, psychohistory only works with huge groups of people. Yeah, it only We're works on like, like a it only works on like a societal level. Like, like trillions of people. Yet his plans seem to hinge on the decisions of individuals, which psychohistory has nothing to do with. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, a lot of the the fate of the foundation rests on the the decisions of individual people. So how could he possibly use his theory to account for that? And the show actually points that out. In the conversation between him and Gale, or the Harry Seldon mental clone, whatever you want to call it, and Gale on the <laughs> ship, where he's talking about, you shouldn't have been here, it was supposed to be Roz the whole time, everything's been set up, you're supposed to be a Terminus, I don't know, all my stuff is wrong now. And then Gale even throws the, oh yeah, and I can see the future. And he's, it's all wrong, like, it's, none of this works. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, he, he can predict, like, the major huge events, but, like, that getting the in-between is the journey to get there is what's unknown. He knows that the Empire is going to fall. He knows that the Foundation is going to be what's a, what kind of revives civilization, as it were. But it's like, 
how do the people it's, it's almost like an interesting but then he shouldn't worry about the details <laughs> so it's like, almost an interesting it's... theological thing because in discussing our faith like we know we have a concept of what eternity is and we know that god is eternal and we pray that things work out for us one way or the other but god knows what's going to happen and we should trust in that but at the same time we worry about what's going to happen <laughs> so it's yeah it's very human i like that Harry is obviously a very flawed individual, <laughs> as we, and we're like, he has followers who essentially put him on this pedestal. He's not perfect. He's not infallible. Yeah, you know, and that's why not all knowing, and that's why he thought his plan was for his student Raish to to kill him so that Gale could be the because that people wouldn't necessarily worship Harry anymore as like their living god. He they would they would he would be maybe a martyr type figure, whatever. But it would all be it would be under Gale now. But in prescient ability stopped her because in the we lost over. But she basically like she had the same routine of swimming and she was going back to her quarters on the ship. And she like had a random thought. Was, I should go see she go see my my boyfriend tonight, which she usually didn't. And he was in the middle of, of killing Harry, which was Harry's plan. But he didn't plan for Gale seeing. Her, so all I thought was she felt a tremor in the force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like. Raish's decision to then, even after discovered, okay, I'm going to put her in the pod now, and then I'm going to get executed. I'm like, that decision didn't make any sense. Like, he still should have run no. for it. Like, he still should have gone to the yeah. pod. And, and he, he throws the knife in with her, which she'd need, but she doesn't know that. She doesn't know how the knife works and that it has the brain patterns of Harry Seldon in it, and you've got to put it in that thing by the door on the spaceship to make this whole thing work. It was like pure luck that worked out. Yeah, it was, yeah, that was, like I said, that, that was a, maybe the weakest, at least for me. But yeah, the, this middle kind of storyline of Terminus was, and it was visually cool. There's, and they actioned it up compared to the books. There's not like big action scenes, but like this, the scene where they get to the big jump ship, which looked really cool. It was like two rings that were offset a little bit and, I don't know if that's how all the their like ships, kind of their jump ships or warships look. Because this one was like legendary. It was it had been long, long lost and was randomly jumping, and so they had to get on board before it would jump again. Or otherwise, they could be lost to wherever in space. But like the whole, it was it reminded me a lot of the Expanse. I don't know if you guys have seen that of having to kind of storm the ship and unfortunately dying left and right to get to the door, so one person <laughs> could get there and unlock the door, but. Yeah, that the and the ship was an interesting, like the inside of the ship, just really cool. Like I, I love ships. Like I'm a big sci-fi fan, <laughs> so I'm, I think we all are. That was because you don't get a lot of that in the actual books of like ship design. It's right. more of like big picture story stuff. I'm curious to see if we'll get like more ship kind of combat type stuff in the second season because we saw like a big scene of all these ships blowing up the two worlds that we discussed earlier, but right. there wasn't like the. Dogfighting planets get glassed, essentially. Yeah, pretty yeah. Much. yeah, I'll be interested to see if they have because in the books, almost everything is from the perspective of the folks of the foundation. You get the one storyline, which is like some colonel somewhere in the, the military structure in the empire who's trying to warn the empire that the foundation is a threat, even then. But what we're seeing is from like Cleon's perspective. So I'll be very interested to see if we don't actually get some like full blown space battles. I'll be, and like you, like I'm like my favorite scene is in star Wars is still return of the Jedi with the space battle above Endor. that I like. Oh yeah. I just, eh, it's over. Rewind. Watch that again. <laughs> yeah. 
this the space battle at the end of Rogue One. Yeah, uh, watch like a million oh, times. Gosh, yeah. yeah, I love a good space battle, but it's I know in in a lot of sort of things that are based on pre Star Wars kind of sci fi, there was less of that sort of in space dog fighting things, and it was more of like the giant either capital ship slugging it out or a ship just rocks up to a planet and glasses it and the people on the surface don't stand a chance at all. Yeah. it's. Like, did they mention that they used like neutron bombs on the planets? I'm like, is that actually what those do? In general, neutron bombs don't glass. They do, right. but the classification area is a lot smaller than say a hydrogen bomb or, or the modern equivalent of those. Your neutron bomb is primarily meant to destroy uh, life and particularly water-based life. So anything that's got a lot of water in it, because what the neutron is going to interact with is going to be something that's equivalently heavy, so like a proton. And water just happens to have those two hydrogen atoms, which are one proton apiece. So anything that's heavy water, when you bathe it in neutrons, it's going to absorb a lot of that energy. And so that's what the neutron bomb is primarily for, is to, to kill off life while leaving infrastructure, to put it gruesomely. So, yeah, like what we see in Huntress's like flashback with like just the huge explosions, that's more reminiscent of, I wouldn't even call that a nuclear kind of bombing. That's more reminiscent of just like conventional ballistics bomb material, which, I mean, pick your horrific poison, right? Like you're bombing a planet. <laughs> <Yeah. so laughs> you're, you're doing a terrible thing. I don't know if yeah. I care how much, how you're doing it. <laughs> and the fact that there were like, there were survivors of this. Because what I see on like online like sci-fi forums and stuff, people say, oh, in, in sci-fi, all you need to do is bomb the planet from orbit and you kill everybody. And I'm like, that's not how that works, even in <laughs> Earth warfare. Just look at like in World War Two, where we would bomb the paste out of some little atoll in the middle of the Pacific and not kill everybody. There was still plenty of Japanese hiding out on that island. You eventually you have to send in guys. So the fact that, yeah, no, aerial bombardment doesn't always kill everybody and there's still survivors left. That made a lot of sense. That's they like, just didn't care. Yes, that's the arrogance of the Empire. They're like, they think they that they've terrified them into submission and taking care of the problem. But then turns out they there's a survivor and <laughs> it's going to come back to bite them in the bite them with this jump ship that they found. And, and yeah, and then this whole storyline kind of culminates with the, the foundation of this resistance against the empire and and harry Sullivan, which i guess this is like a clone but like that has the memory this has the mental imprint of the original harry Sullivan. because doesn't it say that like this the, the yeah. vault is like a pod that harry's genetic material was in that broke down into its component atoms and then rebuilt it over however long and then yeah it was his, his coffin right? right yeah it was the yeah coffin. okay yeah, yeah his, and I'm, sort of I'm not disintegrated itself anything, and then rebuilt itself, which I don't know how that works because it was yeah, the, I don't, before yeah. that. Day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the maybe we'll find something out in the next season that I didn't really understand why they had to break down. I get the coffin part like that. That's interesting. It revived him or whatever, but break him down into his component elements or atoms and then rebuild him exactly the same. But it was just I didn't really have much speculation on what the vault was, but that was finding it be at like a clone of Harry was the farthest thing from what I thought it was <laughs> going to be in the end. Um, 
I felt like I remembered that from the book. That was the one thing I remembered from the first book, that there was a thing called the vault and that some sort of copy of Harry was in. Is is, is that true? Is that from the first book? Because I, yeah. I feel like I remember it's that. It's not okay. so much a copy as, as it is like a holo recording. Like it's just. Yeah, like an AI. Oh, that's yeah. right. In, yeah. In the, I think in the books, he literally, before he dies, he just records all these crises points and his speech. Yeah. And then sets him up in the vault and then he dies. And there's no, this vault seems a little more dynamic because it has this whole art genetic remaking of Jerry, Harry's mind. And it's a way you can bring him back whenever you want to. Cause then anytime there's a crisis, Oh, the vault's opening again. It's, it's Harry who hasn't aged, (laughs) aged at all. So they could figure out that you can get multiple timelines of with Harry kind of being the same person, but yeah, I don't, if y'all don't have anything else on that one, we can move on to the, the last storyline, which I, I I don't know if I like this, the Terminus storyline better than the kind of the Cleon storyline, but they were both really interesting to me. But I, might, I wrote out more of a summary, but I might try to cut it down a little bit. But in the kind of the same modern time in the Empire, Brother Day, who is the former Brother Dawn. So it's, you have to remember, it's confusing. You have yeah. to remember yeah. that the kid who was Brother Dawn before is now the ruling Emperor. He's facing a religious crisis as there's like this new leader who's rising in the religion, who's starting to speak against cloning and saying, basically saying they have no soul because they can't be transformed. They can't change. So brother Dave actually visits this holy world and to prove himself embarks on this desert in the journey where you, I guess you can't bring any supplies. You just have to walk this path and until either you get to the end, which has a pool of, you know, magic water that gives you a vision or you die on the path or I guess you can be helped from the path. Yeah. Um, you can be rescued or um, if you make it off, they'll come give you water. Yeah. If you can get off the path yourself, but if you fall and die in the middle, they won't. <laughs> yeah, <harsh>. And <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so he does, he survives his journey and he tells everyone he has this big vision, which kind of leads to the religion being like, Oh, you're, which it was something to do with. He saw a vision. He says he saw a vision of a flower, which led to, which is like a big symbol in that religion and like a threefold, almost like a Trinitarian. Cause it's like the maiden, the mother and the crone or something like that. So it's a similar trend type of thing to the Trinity. So he tells me he has this vision, but then he, he actually doesn't because he really had no vision kind of proving them right. That there's no, he doesn't have a soul in terms of that religion, but to cover his bases, he has Edo Demersal, who's his major demo problem solver kind of person who's actually a follower of this religion, which I thought was really interesting. And she's, she took this journey herself. They say she's like 12,000 years old or something like that, or she's pretty old. So she, or I, in my notes, I, I have 11,000. So she knows that she took this journey herself and then cut back. So there's a lot of cutting back and forth <laughs> between the, the various clones of Cleon. The other kind of part of this is brother Don, who's the up and coming Cleon starts to fall for this Imperial gardener. And then even admitting her that he has some deficiencies that should not exist as a clone and we find out that there's clones of clones that everyone has a backup so if you're found to be lacking you can be killed and your clone gets your memories and you're back and nothing ever happened so he realizes that dusk who is the brother day that blew up the two planets is finding out his secret and decides to escape and before he's terminated but it's and he tries to escape with his Azura as the gardener's name, but it's a trap. And 
she's actually she's actually part of a resistance who had obtained the Cleon genetic material and made their own brother Dawn. So there's a, a clone of a clone, <laughs> and <laughs> and they needed nanobots from the real brother Dawn to get him to the palace, and he's going to be their man on the ground. But it turns out they had already modified the the DNA of Dawn to make him different and engineer this whole thing, and. During this whole process, Dusk arrives and he knew the whole plan the whole time. He kills the Dawn imposter, brings the, the real Dawn back and to plead his case to live before Brother Day. And Brother Day basically kills everyone Azura knew or has any <laughs> kind of connection to. And everyone those people knew <laughs> goes on a bit of a killing spree, which was interesting because he's, he wants to let Brother Dawn live. He's going after right. and killing all these people. So it's okay. because it's his son, basically, or in a way that he wants him to live. But he basically sentences her to a sensory deprivation prison where she can't move or do anything and is going to be force fed. So she can't take her own life. So she basically will live as long as she can with no senses. And then, however, then Demersel kills Dawn and it's revealed that the body of the original Cleon has been altered. So there's actually no true identical clone. and. Wow. Wow. Uh, I I thought this was an interesting storyline because I think the religion, I don't remember if they ever give it a name, but it's Luminism. Luminism? Okay. It's reincarnation based because they talk about that several times and that is that is the basis for them for that the one sect and the one rising leader to say that the Cleonic the genetic dynasty doesn't have a soul is because they're breaking the reincarnation cycle, like Cleon the first is reincarnated as something else, someone else, somewhere else in the galaxy. And there's these extant parts that are not part of the whole reincarnation process. And I find it interesting kind of, you know, shockingly having listened to a lot of Jimmy Aiken talk about (laughs) cloning (laughs) and like from the concept, the Judeo-Christian concept, the human is a human is a human. I don't care where you came from. I do. There's a, there is a particular way to do this whole becoming human thing <laughs> that we're supposed to do, but people have figured out other ways to do it. But a human's a human and humans have souls. And that's just how it is. And so I, I found that interesting because like the sort of juxtaposition between this religions, because it's hinged on the reincarnation cycle and the thought that if you have a genetic copy, they're not part of that cycle anymore. Whereas if you just look at a human as a human, then um, their soul is what, like, all humans have souls. It's part of being human. And the whole time, that's mostly what I was thinking about when he's going on this journey. And what I found interesting that, that after coming back from it, him and Dusk have a real disagreement about what to do with Dawn. And... Day brings up the fact they say we can't change and maybe it's time we do. Maybe it's because of our stiltedness or whatever. And you can tell in his mind, it's I, I need to prove that I have a soul <laughs> and maybe I need to prove to myself I have a soul because I didn't get my yeah. vision. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. That he's, he's proving it to himself as much as anyone else. That he's a real boy. Yeah. So is, is his Android the, the blue fairy or is she Jiminy? <laughs> she kind of dresses like a fairy a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to spoil it, but that makes 
the the beginning of the next season because I've seen the first episode of the next season. That makes that real strange, but <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> well, there's in the listeners' minds of this. No, I'm kidding. No, that's yeah. It was like I was not expecting like I was expecting Dawn I was expecting Dust to kill Dawn. I was not expecting it to be Demersal. I thought it was uh-huh. I thought Demersal was and I don't know if she did it as like kind of a revenge thing partially against Cleon for kind of lying about his vision or if it was like she believes in the stability of, of this Cleonic line so much that any threat to that is a threat to 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 humanity overall which again in the books you might learn that there's this guiding intelligence of kind of leading the leading Harry Seldon and the foundation from the beginning I don't I'd be interested to see if we come to find out that there's any prior relationship of Eto and Harry or else or why she's following these this kind of more murderous path than the three laws of robotics would allow and it's her reaction at the end of it all is pretty interesting too it's like she's horrified at herself for what she just did killing Dawn. right i thought it was interesting with the whole luminism subplot though where and they even call it a conclave where they're going to elect this new (laughs) popus over this religion like it it Almost reminded me of the setup where it's like the Holy Roman Emperor is trying to get influence over the conclave and trying to elect a pope that will be pliant and or something like that. Because, you know, between the papal states and the Holy Roman Empire, there was always that tension. You know, who's the real power, the emperor or the pope? And it's I liked those parallels. I thought it was interesting. And since the Galactic Empire, I mean, they say, you know, Asimov in his books, he's. He was inspired by the book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. So there's already a lot of parallels to the old Roman Empire there. So for the show to bring in parallels to the sort of medieval Holy Roman Empire, which, as they say, was not holy, not Roman, and not and really, not an, really empire. an empire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in any case, you know, the Holy Roman Emperors, you know, they did not get along with the popes and were often trying to, you know, insinuate themselves into this process. So, yeah, I liked the historical parallels of that. Yeah, there was definitely a theme of <clears throat> of this part in just in, in the whole show and really in general of like self-determination. You're not like characters trying to fight against what they're expected to do or what they're told to do, especially like Gail was supposed to do this thing. Sauer was supposed she was because she's the warden of Terminus. She's just she's like the marshal of the planet back to star wars or something where she's she's the one handling security but she doesn't have a lot of a lot of people under her she's but she ends up going on on this whole other like this whole other kind of venture of figuring out she is actually the child of these people from original ship and whatnot and then of course cleon both brother day of the future he's trying to fight against the whole I'm not a, I can't, because I think he does, like, it, it, when he's taking the journey, he may have been sarcastically doing it as, I'm just going to do it to prove that I'm worthy t- so that these people stop bothering. But by the end of it, you think he's, he wants to have this kind of religious experience. So he's changing in that regard. And then, of course, Brother Don is, he wants to get out and live a life, live his own life free of the, the palace. Because, for one, he thinks he's going to be found out and killed because he's got blindness, I think, is one of the, one of the, quote unquote deficiencies that he has. Yeah, a lot of people are trying to fight against their like what they're being told to do, raging against yeah. the machine in this show. And Demerzel has her programming. And how much can she promit programming? 
how much is she really an an entity with agency or just a robot? Which is why to me it was so interesting that she has this religious faith and like Cleon questions her about it. Like why do you believe in this? And it made me wonder, is she programmed to believe in this religion or was that an emergent thing where like even a robot of a certain intelligence wants to find meaning in the universe or is it just monkey see monkey do it sees like well humans seek religious meaning in the universe so maybe i should and i don't think the show really answers that but that's interesting yeah it reminds me of one of the the, because i robot was also a series of short stories and there was a short story about one of the robots taking over he was put in charge of a space station and he basically sets up a religion as a robot <laughs> and the two guys are like what is going on <laughs> they don't understand it i'm like you're a robot like, look this is the most logical conclusion obviously there's a creator there's a they created all of you and all of this like it all had to come from somewhere bud <laughs> like and they're like what I, but you're a robot like they just keep going back to the yeah <laughs> I really liked the conversation Cleon has with the other pilgrim when he's on the trail. Yeah. That is really, I think, so, and it's interesting because him and Dawn are having the same, or I should say, the same kind of eye-opening experience. Dawn's getting it through being told about the outside world and then seeing it through the little bug whatever that was, the little the machine. Drone. Yeah, the drone that flies yeah. out. And then eventually escaping himself and seeing it, getting that experience. It's funny, every time he gets hurt, like he stumbles or falls, or you can tell like, that's probably the first time he's ever felt pain. Yeah. <laughs> and But Day's getting it the same way. Like he's having this experience of the quote-unquote common man, the common person, and what's important to them. And he gets, they both get it very clearly that like Dawn, like the emperor is important to these people, but in a way that like, because they want to get rid of them. And <laughs> today the emperor is not important at all. What's important about the empire or the emperor is the fact that this guy could purchase transport on a ship that was up kept by the, so the emperor's peace was important, but the emperor, I don't know that guy. <laughs> like, right. And so I, I think, for the characters, it was, I think they put it like, you're the palace of a menagerie. And the way Dusk has it in his mind, because Dawn is, oh, I'm just learning about other parts of Trantor. And Dusk is, we're Trantor. Like, you don't need to know about the other part. Yeah, they call him, and they even, they, the title is Empire. Like, you are Empire. Not, yeah. Not your, ma- I, a I lot noticed, of time, yeah. not your majesty or, or it's literally Empire. So there, yeah, there's definitely that whole thing of, it's not who, it's really, you're the figurehead, but you're also, but in, which, like I said, is from the books that the Empire Emperor was a figurehead, but you're also like, you're doing stuff and you're, it's, a, it's an Emperor Palpatine kind of empire where you're like, you're in charge of everything. And you may have, you have a lot of underlings who do your bidding, but you have at least an eyeball on most things. Did you, did you guys notice that when he's talking about the Emperor's peace a lot, he makes that hand gesture, yeah, the, which in religious art, yeah, I'm into Jesus often make, yeah, the as two, like a blessing symbol, yeah, like the, the Trinity because it's or the two fingers, yeah, with the two fingers down and the three up, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah very. I was like, hey, I was like, yes, <laughs> you can't appropriate that, <laughs> Emperor Cleon. That's 
blasphemous, essentially. He, he does act like he's a god, essentially. And a lot of people treat him as such. Hail, Empire. They're all like cringing and like being like obeisant to him. But yeah, like you said, he's most of the Cleons are like in a menagerie. The palace is this glass box that they never leave. Like when Brother Day wants to go on the mission to the Conclave, Brother Dusk is, but I do. That's my job. You're <laughs> supposed to stay here and be Empire. And he's, no, I'm doing it now. And it's, and I like what in that scene, though, what Demerazel says, because Brother Day accuses the way they've been doing things is leading to impulsiveness and chaos. So I'm going to take things into my own hands and do that. And Demerazel's, oh, yeah, that definitely won't lead to more impulsivity and chaos. <laughs> yeah. She has so many, like, sick burns through the course of the show. Yeah. Like, you're just like, oh, that was a backhanded comment right there. <laughs> yeah, I found the emperors to be some of the most interesting characters in the series, just because they're supposed to all be the same, but they're not really. And not just because of their genetic defects. They all really are starting to manifest. They have different ways of viewing the universe and different agendas and different priorities. Yeah, you definitely, because I think at the beginning of the show, like when the Starbridge was blown up, you get the sense before that, that there'd been a long piece of no, nothing, no major things rocking the boat, like everything's status quo. And so that was the first thing that, and the brother day who we see at the end of the show, who did the religious journey was brother Don at the time. So he saw that as a youth and saw his, saw brother day of the time who is now dusk. He had that response of, I'm going to take revenge on these two planets. So he may have seen that and thought, maybe that's not the only way we can do things. Cause he saw the out, the fallout of that. Yeah, definitely a lot of interesting a lot of interesting stuff in this show, for sure. I don't know if we, as we move into kind of closing thoughts, I don't know if you'll have anything else you want to bring up or say about this first season. I do want to talk a little bit about it because of the day it is. We're recording this on September 11th. And this show at the outset features a very similar terrorist attack that destroys what effectively is a giant tower, right? Brings down the Star Bridge and brings it down on the planet. And I thought it was very interesting in a lot of ways they paralleled kind of the u.s's response in the show because you see they bring in they interrogate people they bring in ambassadors they try and figure out who it is and then there's the eventual invasions and they went after two different planets we went after afghanistan and iraq and the long drawn-out wars and the kind of the far-reaching implications of that is what you get to see in the terminus piece of the puzzle, like you get to see the Thespans. And I want to say when Salvo is dealing with the Huntress and all she sees is blackness within the Huntress, right? It's just this gulf of hatred. She doesn't care about people anymore. And it's because, because her, her, she watched her brother die as the planet was getting half annihilated because of this response to this terrorist action. And it's interesting to me, it's, it was a very clear parallel. I don't, I imagine the writers may have tried to do that. I don't know if they were trying to do that on purpose, but it seemed to me to be a very clear parallel of when we think about the wars that were fought because of the terrorist actions of 9-11, there were a lot of people, there were a lot of casualties that happened that weren't a direct part of the war. You think about the Christian populations that were 
just decimated in Iraq and had to flee to other parts of the world, which also are not very friendly to them either because there was a war on because terrible things can happen during a war. I, just because it is today, I did want to bring up the parallels to that. Yeah. And how I felt that, yeah, it, it brought up that idea that wars tend to breed more hatred and more resentments and it becomes a cycle of just unending violence. Because like the Huntress feels we were wrongly attacked because they feel their planet didn't have anything to do with it and that it was like a false flag operation or whatnot. And now they want to get revenge on the Empire doing a similar thing with this jump ship that they want to hijack. And so it just becomes an escalating cycle of violence. And you can see that in, in the real world where even people who weren't radicalized previously become radicalized because they're bombed. And they feel like they have no control over what's happening and they just start venting their hatred towards obviously the I need to get back at the people who are bombing. And I felt that, that yeah, the 9-11 parallels were very strong, even to the and I think it was intentional because they even bring up details like the people falling out. And and that that first episode was rough, but I was I was impressed by it. And I thought that. Even though they decided to go that way, I, I felt it was handled tastefully. It wasn't a gratuitous kind of use of 9-11 imagery. And I felt that it worked for the story. And they don't really linger too much. And it, it, it does propel the characters forward, which is really, you know, important. Otherwise, it, it would just be gratuitous. But yeah, I, I think they definitely wanted to make that analogy. Yeah. And there's that conversation... When he's, when Don decides, okay, we're doing this. And mm. I want to say, or not Don, sorry, Day. And Don is still a kid at this point. And I right. think he's talking to the robot, but I can't remember if he's talking to Dusk. And it's something along the lines of, like, whenever Leon's been put in this position, there's always two paths, and it's mercy or revenge, or vengeance, or justice. I can't remember how they term it. And it might be justice. And that, that's another thing to talk about. There is a justice element here. This killed mm-hmm. tons of people, right? This was a terrorist act. And whoever's talking to Dawn basically says he never chooses mercy. Like it's, you just, it lays the groundwork for who eventually, Day, who eventually becomes Dusk for the rest of the season is. And it's this, this sort of non merciful person. Yeah, that's what I mean, that it sets him up. As a character, his whole life is framed by being a child when that happened. And it has such an impact on the rest of, you know, his life. And, you know, a lot of us were were pretty young when 9-11 happened. And, it, you know, I, I was only like 13. And it's that kind of thing in my life where it's like you remember life before and you remember life after. It's one of those milestone events that you remember. And like for my parents' generation, they, they tell me it was the JFK assassin. They remember it before and after. And so I, I like that they show that's like the defining moment of what he be, of the man he becomes later in life. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree. I, yeah, because I, we were supposed to record this a couple of weeks ago and we had to move it to today. And yeah, the, I thought about that earlier too. Yeah, the, talking about a terrorist attack on this 
and eleven. Yeah, they're definitely like good sci-fi reflects the world, and that's while that was twenty over twenty years ago now, it's still something that's that we see the ramifications of. But yeah, if any other final closing thoughts before we kind of conclude for this evening. Oh, I just wanted to mention the music real quick. Bear McCreary. Once again, great soundtrack by Bear McCreary. He also did the soundtrack for Rings of Power. Mm, okay. And I could tell, the especially in show. the... <laughs> but the, especially in the intro music for Foundation, there were some similar motifs to some of his Rings of Power music. So I, I could definitely tell, yeah. that I could tell that when I saw his name attached to the music, I wasn't surprised at all. And he's quickly becoming one of my favorite contemporary composers. He also did the soundtrack for the, the new God of War games, which is also a really great soundtrack. And so, yeah, I, I hope to see his name on next season's music. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that, but yeah, we're... Yeah. Thomas and I are over on the Secrets of Middle Earth, so we talked extensively about Rings of Power, uh, which we did. I think we liked it overall, <laughs> without yeah. its, not without its problems. But see um, the Secrets of Middle Earth for more. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, if, yeah. So oh, go ahead. One parting tie-in. So psychohistory has to be used on trillions of people, unless you're Reed Richards, who figured out <laughs> how to use it on America. And that is the basis of the Civil War set of book graphic novels. Yeah. So if you're, yeah, he has that conversation mm-hmm. with uh, Tony Stark. He's, I figured it out. We were screwed no matter what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're interested in hearing us eventually talk about that, Coffee and Comics plays on the secrets of movies and TV. <laughs> that, that's right. We need to do that as Civil War movie versus the, the comics. Yeah. That should definitely be, a, I will make a note of that. <laughs> <laughs> the multiverse of SQP. Yes. <laughs> All right. If no one has anything else, that's it for this episode of Secrets of Movies and TV. I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Vince S., Melanie S., Ted K., Bruce G., and Megan S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give help us continue to create the Secrets of Movies and TV and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them at sqpn.com slash give. And we'd love to hear from you all. What did you think of season one of Foundation? You can let us know at sqpn.com slash podcasts slash secrets of movies and TV shows on our Facebook page or on or on X and I guess it's called now. Or send an email to s- at sqpn.com or visit our channel on the StarQuest Discord server at sqpn.com slash discord. So until then, thank you, Patrick Mason, for sharing the Secrets of Foundation. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you, Thomas Salerno. Thanks, Jeff. Once again, I'm Jeff Hecker. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Movies and TV on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. Let's Science. Find the show wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science. We'd like to thank Patrick McCaffrey of Moonshadow Studios for editing this episode. To have your audio edited professionally and with care, check out more of Patrick's work at moonshadowstudios.biz. That's moonshadowstudios.biz. 